for for joining um like i said before you joined sorry for kicking it off a little bit late like possibly everybody else i've been absolutely doom scrolling the whole ukraine situation um and so um i was just watching this crazy video of a, a rocket going off next to a home with kids crying and it was quite a quite a horror show but um but um i don't know if you have any ukraine takes maybe we can get get to those um towards the end of the show if you do i've, I've hesitated to have any ukraine takes because i i know practically nothing about the country and i'm willing to admit that um yeah but... I'm, uh, I'm definitely no expert on, on foreign <laughs> policy so so yeah maybe i should i should withhold any any opinions on that um in situations like this what i'd like to do is meta commentary on the sort of commentary at the sort of people how they're reacting to the to the ukraine situation i often find more interesting um at least to me because again i can't make sense of ukraine but um but, but let's let's before we go into a total rabbit hole. Sorry, I'm obviously being a terrible host. Let me introduce you properly and introduce um, what I hope is the topic um, of of this conversation. You gave me a very good reading list, by the way, which I've spent the past couple of days reading. Um, so you're Rob Henderson, and I, you know, it's it's you're such an interesting voice. I think in in the general online commentary that it's it's sometimes hard to classify people like you. I had uh, Zaid Jelani on here as well. And he's someone similar yeah. to you whose perspective I always enjoy, but he doesn't come from a sort of super typical media milieu. Not, not that you haven't written for traditional media, you have, but it just seems like you're a little bit out of band, which is kind of what's so interesting about you. Um, and so maybe, um, maybe I'll just shut up there. And I, I know your personal story and how you came to, you know, occupy a position in sort of the elite firmament from what I understand from your bios. I think you're, you're still a PhD student at Cambridge. Is that, is that right? Yes, that's right. I'm in my final year in the, uh, yeah, the sort of final stages of my thesis. Right. It's funny in, in European universities, the PhD is a little bit more of a regimented process. You like, there's actual, like a bounded time limit in, I, I was in grad school and it was always this, well, <laughs> you could be here yeah. forever sort of vibe <laughs> to it. Um, but that's not where you started, right? You started life in a very different milieu. So I, I, maybe you're bored of explaining your bio, but it, it's, it seems to be so much of what you write about. Maybe we could ask you to, to, to do a version of it here. Yeah, sure, sure. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Antonio, for, for welcoming me here. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, so I'm currently a fourth-year PhD student uh, here in Cambridge before this. Uh, I was, you know, I did my undergrad at Yale, also studied psychology there as well. I worked in a psych lab as an undergrad, as a research assistant. But yeah, before I entered these, uh, these fancy universities, my life was a lot different. Um, yeah, so just backing way up, I was born into poverty uh, in Los Angeles. My mother was an, an immigrant from South Korea. She didn't know who my father was. Uh, I'd never met him. My mother, when I was three, uh, became very addicted to drugs. She sort of succumbed to her addiction. And I was placed into foster care. So I bounced around different foster homes in LA for a few years. Um, I was later adopted uh, by a working class family. We settled in this kind of blue collar, dusty town in Northern California called Red Bluff. Um, one of the poorest counties in Northern California, one of the most dangerous cities in California, actually. And, you know, there was, uh, my, my adoptive parents, they created a, a good home for me, but they divorced, um, about a year and a half later. And my adoptive father stopped speaking to me after this as a way to, uh, basically get revenge on my adoptive mother for divorcing him. And so after not knowing who my father was and then living in all those foster homes and then, um, you know, losing contact with my adoptive father. 
uh, it was just extremely difficult for me emotionally as a young kid. And so, you know, I took it out, getting into a lot of trouble, uh, really didn't pay attention in school. My grades were terrible. Um, you know, th there was just a lot of, a lot of drama and disorder throughout my youth that you know, suppressed any kind of academic potential I might've had. Um, so fast forwarding just a little bit, I, when I was 17, I enlisted in the military, partly out of desperation just to get out of, uh, that kind of the tumultuous situation that I'd been in. And yeah, that, that was really a turning point for me, sort of being in the military, being in a more stable environment, allowing me to sort of reflect on where I had come from and, uh, gave me the you know ability to equip myself with, you know, what I need to do to, to, to sort of strive for what I'd always wanted, I think, which was to, to be sort of uh, educationally successful, occupationally successful. But, you know, I was just weighed down by so many negative experiences and um, let down by so many adults as a kid that it was hard for me to do that when I was, you know, where I was. So in any case, after the military, I went to Yale in the GI Bill and ended up here in Cambridge. So that is the very short version of, of my life. Well, yeah, and I, it's funny, I, I had to look up Red Bluff because the name is vaguely familiar, but I've never been there. And I realize it's on the five, kind of south of Reading. Um, mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I've driven, yeah. I, I didn't realize it was Reading. most. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I knew Reading could be a little rough. I didn't realize Red Bluff was the most violent city in, um, in California. Uh, um, it's not the most. It's, uh, it's usually ranked as the uh, fourth or the fifth, typically like right behind uh, certain parts of LA, right behind Oakland. But yeah, consistently uh, fourth or fifth. I mean, the the, the violent crime rate is uh, extremely high, especially for a, a more kind of rural area. Right. Interesting, and um, and it's amazing because like that sort of flip that you that you went through from, I mean, I wouldn't even say working class. It's kind of a broken home, a foster home, working class, and then you instantly went to Yale. And you write very poignantly about this in um, in the various pieces that you sent me. Um, one thing that stuck out at me, for example. And, and I think it sounds like this is formative in your formulation of, of maybe what you're perhaps best known for, or the catchphrase you're best known for, which is luxury beliefs, right? Um, you, you mentioned that you first realized that you were <laughs> in a very different environment. Is I, I think you wrote an essay and someone complained that it was too gendered, right? The, the thought of using gender as a verb is very much a class marker, <laughs> right? That only yeah. very few people... So what, what was that like going from, you know, starting in Red Bluff and ending up in in Yale where, where gender is a verb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that particular story, I, I was in my, I think my first semester at Yale. So this was in 2015. I mean, you know, that, that whole, my whole introduction to elite higher education took place at a very unusual time. Uh, so, you know, some people may, you know, listening may remember what was happening in 2015, the sort of uh, soft revolution going on in a lot of the universities, a lot of protests, a lot of demonstrations going on at Yale in particular, there was the sort of, a lot of people know it as like the Halloween costume controversy. Um, but but the, the gender story was basically, you know, I, I, I tried my hand at writing for um, uh, an on uh, an on campus humor magazine. And I was in this uh, brainstorming session. And we were basically just brainstorming, you know, uh, headlines that might be funny. And the theme for that month's issue was puberty. And so we're spitballing, you know, and I came up with some silly uh, headline, like, you know, uh, 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 you know, teenage boy discovers porn gold mine in his front right pocket. And the editor of the magazine kind of, you know, looked at me with his eyebrow raised and he said, you know, why does it have to be gendered? And I was, I didn't even know what he was talking about. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, I knew what gender meant, of course, like gender, you know, male, female, whatever, but gendered with the ED, the sort of, you know, the verb version, I had never heard that before. 
and so I, I, I just, I just um, realized in that moment, like just what a different environment I was in, how I didn't speak the language of a lot of these students. I was in a completely different environment in terms of social class. And so the, that experience, along with many others, uh, that first semester and, you know, basically that entire period in undergrad led me to uh, to coin this phrase, like you said, luxury beliefs. And yeah, I mean, we can we can definitely get into that more. I mean, just briefly, I define luxury beliefs as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. Um, right, right. Um, I, in what, maybe the best way to illustrate it um, or the dichotomy is with, I, again, another anecdote from one of your pieces is that you, I think you cited a friend at Yale who said that if you like expanded the radius of Tinder to just be like Yale University <laughs> and Corn New Haven, you would find that whatever, some shockingly high percentage of women claim to be polyamorous. And then if you expanded it to like 15 miles to include New Haven proper, which itself is not quite as hoity-toity a town, you just... You just became a single mother. It wasn't. It wasn't this sort of exciting thing, yeah. and and that. And I think the key part of your luxury belief thing, in addition to it being a Veblen good, right? Which, for those who aren't familiar, a Thorsten Veblen, famous kind of idiosyncratic um, Norwegian American economist, coined this term in his theory of the leisure class. Of of everyone's probably heard this phrase, conspicuous consumption. The idea being that a form of consumption is a class marker in a way. And I think what's interesting mm -hmm. about this luxury belief thing, right, is that. It's not necessarily a, a physical good. It's not like exactly a Gucci handbag, but effectively it's Gucci beliefs, right? And <laughs> right. if I'm interpreting your your luxury belief correctly, is that is that is that yeah, kind of yeah, what yeah, right, right. So, so I mean, one of the you know, I, I was reading a lot of those sort of classic sociological texts, uh, in addition to sort of more more modern research in in um, social and evolutionary psychology, which is you know my my sort of uh, primary interest, and you know, one of the things that I kept asking myself when I was, you know, walking around Yale and just seeing how much sort of anxiety there was on campus, you know, so so for me, it was like, I can't even believe I got here. I feel like, wow, I can't, you know, I, I felt um, very grateful and um, and wasn't so anxious. But a lot of the students there were, were sort of hyper preoccupied with sort of the next milestone, the next step, getting the internship, getting into law school or medical school or getting that, you know, whatever the, the, the job at whatever bank or and so on. And so like, there was just this, this constant sort of preoccupation with, with, with essentially what I came to you know, social status. And so um, the pieces sort of came together for me when I was reading first a psychology paper, basically finding that the people who care the most about social status are the people who already have it. Uh, and the paper itself was called, the more you have, the more you want. And it, it was sort of, um, you know, basically identified people's objective positions in terms of their socioeconomic status, how much education they have, how much money they have, and so on. But it also asked them questions about, you know, how much they desire to have more money, how much they desire to have more status, positions of power, positions of influence, and so forth. And those two things were positively correlated, meaning the more money and more status you have, the more money and status that you want, which to me was kind of counterintuitive, because I would have predicted that people who were maybe sort of more uh, dispossessed, more downtrodden, down on their luck, those were the people who might might be more interested in, you know, gaining some money, getting some power, sort of rising up a little bit on the ladder. But that wasn't true. And then when I read uh, Thorsten Veblen's work, along with Pierre Bourdieu and Paul Fussell and some of these other sort of more, uh, you know, classic texts, 
uh, basically finding that in the past, the upper class uh, displayed their social positions with their material goods. So, you know, back in Veblen's day, he was a you know sociologist and economist in the late 19th and early 20th century. And so back then they, you know, the, the, the upper class demonstrated their positions with, you know, like delicate and restrictive clothing, uh, fancy clothes, tuxedos, evening gowns, uh, pocket watches, monocles. They'd take up these sort of um, expensive and, and inconspicuous hobbies like golf or beagling. Uh, and so my claim though, is that today, uh, there, there are kind of two things going on, but as far as like why I think that the the ability for material goods to signify wealth and status, uh, it's not as pronounced. One reason is because those goods have become more affordable. And so, you know, like a simple example is like, you know, my the, the sort of affluent students that I know here in Cambridge are the ones I know at Yale. They all have iPhones, but so do my like working class friends from high school. Um, and so it's it's become a little bit harder, I think, to sort of stand out in that way. And the other, I think, is because it's become a little bit more gauche or vulgar to display, like to, to cons conspicuously display uh, fancy material goods, um, in part because of like environmental movements and these other kinds of concerns. Not to say it doesn't go on. You know, if you go on Instagram, you can clearly see that people are still trying to signal status with, with material goods. But my claim is that it's, it's not quite as widespread as it used to be. An example I give is like if you walked around Manhattan 100 years ago, you'd instantly be able to tell like, you know, that person's rich, that person's poor just by the way they look, by the way they dress. Uh, whereas today, if you walk around Manhattan, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell someone's social position just by the way that they're dressed. Um, and so how do they do it? You know, the upper class always wants to signify their status. Today, they're doing it with with what I call luxury beliefs, uh, these sort of novel, bizarre, unusual opinions that uh, allow them to distinguish themselves from uh, conventional, you know, sort of working class or middle class people. So if there's a conventional thought or belief that exists out there, something like, you know, maybe we should have a police force, then a way that you can distinguish yourself is, uh, you know, to, to go to the opposite of that. And, and suddenly you become this sort of unique and interesting person and you signify that you're a member of a, of a different kind of social class. Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm reminded of... Um... Uh, the famous uh, GS Elevator. GS Elevator used to be the sort of satire account that reportedly said uh, what people were saying in Goldman Sachs's elevator. Um, and it was, um, you know, the Brits are great. You can just tell wh whether someone's rich or poor by their accent, right? You can, <laughs> like, it's literally... <laughs> it's, <laughs> see, they're so much more efficient at classism than we are. In our case, you would have to sit there and use gendered and write, you know, go on a 15-minute soliloquy. But like literally you open your mouth and the Brits know exactly where to bin you and they're like 36 grades of class um, and, and, which, and which flavor of BBC you watch. Because even BBC itself is coded by class, right? There's like yeah. BBC 4 and 5 and all the rest of it. And it's funny, I didn't realize that until I actually started doing media after my book and I realized a BBC 5 interview is very different than a BBC 1 interview. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, so yeah. about the accents you know it's funny like as an american especially like as an american from the kind of you know whatever more more uh humble beginnings that i had like i didn't really ha you know i just couldn't distinguish between british accents so you know i i just i first got here and I, I wasn't really picking up on it it wasn't really on my radar but then like the longer that i'm here the more british people i speak to and interact with and the more that i learn i realize like yeah, it's true. Like, you know, the, uh, a professor at Cambridge speaks like a, uh, noticeably different than than my barber, whereas uh, at Yale and New Haven, this wasn't necessarily true. I mean, you know, maybe to some degree, if you really try to pay attention. But yeah, in America, accent is much more flattened and and it's harder to, to predict. Yeah, like where someone is just based on the way that they speak. 
But it's, yeah, it's interesting though. You mentioned that the business of uh, luxury goods versus beliefs. I mean, in a post-scarcity world in which the material matters less and less, you would imagine that, you know, those status markers would then go into, again, the ideological realm. Because as you said, it's a little bit gauche to be really blingy. And mm. although even then, right, like even in Silicon Valley, like supposed casual wear, if, you know, if you know what you're looking for, you can distinguish the, you know, $400 pair of like custom jeans from just like a regular pair of jeans. But it's, right. it's, it's not as obvious. It's certainly not as obvious as it used to be. Um, so, um, interesting. So, so do you have any other anecdotes or, or, or from that Yale period? Or, I mean, it, it seems yeah. I, there must, there must've been something really juicy or, or scandalous that happened in there. Cause it just seems like such a collision of. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was just a bunch of, there's a bunch of, of, of crazy stuff that was going on. I mean, I mentioned the, the, the student protests that were going on. I was more or less, I mean, a complete outsider to this world. And so when I, I would ask, I would just ask students like, you know, like, why are people so upset about this? You know, like if, uh, if someone would, you know, say something or, or have some kind of a thing, yeah, I would just ask like, what, and, and there was one time where this, um, this this uh, woman, she she was a student. She grew up in Greenwich and went to Exeter, you know, this expensive private school. And when I asked her or asked someone around us, you know, like basically asking for clarifying information, she just said, like, well, the thing is, you're just too privileged to understand, um, you know, the pain that, you know, these kinds of ideas can cause or what these professors said and so on. And um you know, that stunned me. And there was, you know, on another occasion, I, I was speaking with a with a different student. And, you know, she, she was telling me about how, um, you know, she had grown up with, you know, essentially like a tiger mom, who drilled her and, you know, was she was, um, you know, trying to get her into good school and so on. And, and she said something along the lines of like, I, I imagine, like, you must know what I'm talking about here. And I responded, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, my mom was Korean, and you know, but I, I didn't really grow up like that. You know? And she responded like, oh, so you didn't have a traumatic childhood, you know, and, and she said this in earnestness. And so, you know, having having like repeated interactions like that um, made me realize like, yeah, the, the, the way that these students use certain words like pain or trauma or danger, I mean, we literally had students who wouldn't... Um, you know, who wouldn't interact or speak with certain professors because of you know, the, their opinions or things that they were teaching. It was you know, scary to them or, or dangerous to them. And those words had different meanings to these students. Um, whereas, you know, for me, where I grew up and then in the military, like, you know, danger actually meant like, like physical harm, not necessarily things that someone might say. Um, and so, yeah, it was uh, it, it was difficult for me. One of the things that I did, though, when I was there was uh, I, I, I had this like renewed sense of curiosity, um, almost like this childlike wonder when I first got there, simply because it was astonishing to me that I, I had was even able to enter a place like that. And so I, I very much wanted to see what people were like uh, without me telling them who I was. So I never really like discussed my background or upbringing or anything like that. One, because like I was still back then, I, I was still kind of coy about it, a little bit embarrassed about my, you know, how, how different I had grown up compared to these students. And I didn't really want to talk about it. But the other thing was like, I didn't want to like, you know, influence their views or their opinions. Uh, I wanted to see how they were when they were around people like themselves. And so, you know, I, I would just sort of listen and try to understand. Um, 
and yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it, it was very much, a, a, a just a surreal, surreal experience to see all of that. And one of the reasons why I came to the UK was because I thought that, um, this kind of like political correctness and this kind of so social ideology w wouldn't be um, as prevalent here. And it was, uh, <laughs> you know, so I come to Cambridge hoping like, okay, that was some weird stuff going on in America, especially at the elite university. So well, maybe I'll come over here to England and it won't be, it won't be the same, but uh, you know, um, a lot of people may have, may have heard, you know, a couple of years ago, Jordan Peterson was supposed to be a research fellow on campus and you know, a bunch of activists united and protested and petitioned and got him disinvited. Um, you know, so, and this, this happened to a, a postdoc at St. Edmunds College, uh, Noah Carl. And so, yeah, I mean, these universities aren't, aren't really immune to it either. Yeah, I was about to say, if you really want to escape wokeness, you have to get out of the Anglosphere. I mean, the reality is the UK is way too susceptible to, to American culture. I mean, you'd, you'd have to go to the French or something else to, to yeah. where, where wokeness really wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense. I wrote an article, I think last year, no, the year in 2020 called America Exports Cancel Culture to the World. Uh, and the story there was uh, I, I was invited to speak on a Dutch news website about cancel culture. And I, I was pretty critical of it. Um, and then the, the, the journalist who interviewed me put the video on their website and it got like 170,000 views within a couple of days, which for the Netherlands is pretty good because you know, they have a much smaller population. But then they took the video down and I, I messaged him saying, you know, hey, what happened to the video? And he said, oh, my supervisor. Uh, didn't like, you know, that you were too critical of cancel culture. And, you know, basically it, it, it was, it was, um, it wasn't in favor enough of it. And so and essentially like a video on cancel culture was canceled. And that inspired me to write this article saying, yeah, America used to export, you know, uh, Elvis and blue jeans and Coca-Cola. And now we're exporting this uh, crazy social ideology. Yeah, I mean, look, the only hope here is that Putin's grandkids will be posting their pronouns on their Twitter profile. <laughs> that's the that, that's the long so, that's the long soft power move, right? Uh, ideally, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. So you mentioned Asians and like the assumption of tiger moms. One of the pieces you wrote for Unheard uh, that you seem to write for pretty regularly. And for those who aren't familiar with Unheard, because it's well, it's a it's a UK publication, but it's it's kind of an interesting. Um, I've 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 talked I've I've actually gone on their podcast before, and I've. They almost talked me into doing a piece for them. But they're a very interesting sort of heterodox place. A lot of my favorite writers, other than you, of course, hang out there like um, John Gray, for example, is another great uh, British philosopher that I, that I like uh, reading. But you wrote a piece there called Why the Asians Are Going Woke. And um, the sort of contradictory tension sort of in your piece, right, is that you, you sort of think of Asians as being typically pro-meritocracy anti this sort of very top-down white progressive thing. So for example, I don't know if you follow the news from the UK, there was this SF uh, school board recall last week. Um, and the school board in SF, as you would imagine, is like the wokest thing in the galaxy. And they're utterly, they're utterly incompetent and basically have just kept schools closed during COVID, renamed schools. It was just a total, a total fiasco. And they, the recall vote got almost 80%, which is just an overwhelming landslide uh, for San Francisco. Um, um, but the the largest fractions of pro recall vote came from mostly Asian American neighborhoods in San Francisco, right? Which sort of jibes with the notion of Asians are pro education, pro social mobility. The fact that the school board shut down, for example, Lowell High School, which is this uh, center of sort of public excellence, you know, obviously rubbing the wrong way. But in your piece, um, and I'll shut up after this, you you cite the opposite. You cite that in fact, um, you know, American born Asians in fact, start going down the sort of woke rabbit hole. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is what I was seeing uh, at Yale and it's, yeah. And so basically, I mean, I, I dug into the data as well in that piece for, for Unheard and found that, yeah, there is this, there is this internal conflict essentially showing that, uh, you know, recent arrivals, Asian immigrants uh, very much believe in the American dream. They believe in meritocracy and working hard and striving to get ahead. And then they have children who are, you know, American-born Asians who are raised in America and often, you know, the, their, their parents work very hard to get them into college. So they go to college and then they absorb these fashionable ideas, uh, challenging meritocracy, you know, becoming in favor of race-based policies, affirmative action and so on. And so, yeah, they, they basically uh, absorb, I mean, I argue that it's actually a form of assimilation. Um, that they are assimilating into the sort of upper middle class, upper upper class social milieu, where now you, you know, it's a sort of a luxury belief where if the conventional idea is that, you know, you work hard, you get ahead, uh, and, and that's how you, you know, you strive. And then if that's the conventional opinion, then the way to be a member of the upper class is to basically say, oh, actually, no, 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 we, we need these like new policies in place. Uh, you know, hard work is a myth. It's all about sort of luck and circumstance. And so therefore, we need to sort of uh, reimagine the entire system and re-engineer it uh, in, in order to, to get the outcomes that we want. And so if you look at the actual, you know, there's, there's research on this from, from uh, within sociology showing that, you know, the, the least likely people to support affirmative action are Asian immigrants. Uh, in contrast, uh, you know, sort of second generation American born Asians are, are, are very in favor of it. They're three times more likely to be in favor of affirmative action uh, than, than Asian immigrants are. And so, yeah, I mean, in, in a way, I mean, this is, this is kind of sad, but if you're an Asian immigrant, like you're, you actually hold the values of like an, an older America, you know, the, the sort of old idea of, of the American dream of striving and working hard and so on. Uh, and then once you assimilate and enter into uh, the educated class in America, uh, you, you, you actually don't believe in uh, what America used to believe in. And so that is sort of what we're seeing now. It also affects political orientation as well, uh, social mobility. So one of the more interesting findings uh, that I dug up was that in 1992, uh, more than 50 percent, so more than half of Asian Americans uh, voted for a George H.W. Bush. They voted for the Republican candidate. Uh, but in 2012, uh, only 26 percent voted for Mitt Romney. So essentially uh, the number of, of Asian American Republicans was cut in half. And it was a similar number for Donald Trump as well. And I believe uh, roughly the same for for um, for, for Trump in, in 2020 as well. So essentially, uh, you know, the, the new arrivals sort of have that sort of more what uh, I guess more more conservative or at least perceived to be more conservative ideology of hard work and so on. And then as they sort of assimilate and rise up the social ladder, then they adopt a new kind of soci social ideology and and vote very differently than the way that their parents and grandparents do. Right. It seems like the solution is either to overthrow the existing elite or import more Asian immigrants. <laughs> That's the only way to to but, but then their the kids, existing. man. You know, their kids will. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll they'll become immersed in 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 what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things you wrote about, it, it sort of related to this this business of you know Asians very much assimilating into elite sort of thought patterns. Um, is the thought that this victimhood culture actually is is um, counterproductive, right? That at instilling this drumbeat of sort of learned helplessness and victimhood um, is actually anti-social mobility. So in some sense, adopting these 
these viewpoints, particularly from the children of immigrants who have scaled the ladder. In some sense, I, not that they're directly culpable per se, but it kind of is pulling up the ladder after them in the sense that the views that got them to where they are are not the views that they're willing to instill or at least willing to publicly entertain as, as worthwhile for, you know, for society. It's kind of an odd... Yeah. It's it's oddly hypocritical to some degree. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's uh, it, it is. It's it's pulling up the ladder or kicking it away or whatever. I mean, they they hold a certain set of beliefs that help them, and then they they overturn them, in, in, basically in order to to sort of secure their own positions and then prevent any other sort of new entrants from 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 rising up. Right. I mean, you know, if you if you talk to a lot of, I mean, if you talk to a lot of people who who are you know highly educated and affluent and so forth, and you ask them about the ingredients of success. You know, they'll, they'll publicly, they'll say, you know, oh, it's like, you know, it's systemic, it's luck, it's, it's circumstance and, you know, basically downplaying the role of agency and individual effort. But then if you ask them, oh, what do you tell your kids? You know, if your kids ask you, like, how do you become successful? They're not going to say, like, they're not going to shrug their shoulders and say, oh, I just got lucky. You know, you just got to be in the right place at the right time. Don't worry about it. No, they, they often tell their kids, no, you got to work hard, you got to strive, and their, and their kids absorb this message and get into these great schools. But then they, they promote an ideology that sort of undercuts uh, other people from doing the same thing. Right. And that also applies when it comes to things like their own personal social mores, like raising kids alone or having cohesive families. Um, you, one of the things you cited that, again, is, is counterintuitive, though it stands data scrutiny, is that um, you know people think that poverty is this you know, horribly dispositive and, and sort of determinative factor in life when actually things like family cohesion and having supportive father figures are actually much more important when it comes to being, you know, a functional, socially mobile adult. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So the, the research that I've encountered, essentially, you know, so this is in evolutionary psychology, developmental psychology, uh, they make a distinction between uh, uh, harshness so childhood harshness, which is essentially uh, uh, lo low income, low socioeconomic status, and childhood uh, instability or unpredictability, which is essentially, uh, yeah, lack of, a, of an intact family, you know, the number of relocations, the number of, of step parents, you know, foster homes, all of that stuff, basically like how uncertain the kid's day to day life is. And all of the research I show, I've seen shows that um, instability is a far more powerful predictor of of uh, detrimental outcomes in adolescence and adulthood for kids. So, you know, kids who grew up in unstable environments are more likely to, you know, uh, engage in criminal activities and get into and getting involved in violence and drugs and less likely to graduate from, from high school and college and so on. Whereas childhood, uh, you know, uh, poverty, say, uh, has, has a very weak uh, effect. It's, it's a much weaker predictor of those kinds of things. And this is true. So, so the effect of instability on detrimental outcomes is true even when you control for socioeconomic status, meaning like even if you're a rich kid, but your day to day life is just chaos and your parents are, are neglectful or abusive and so on. Uh, then that kid is, is far more likely to, to, to have uh, unfortunate uh, outcomes as, as an adolescent and, and as an adult. And so I think we just focus, I mean, we focus too much on economic circumstances and material circumstances uh, within developed countries. So this is not to say that, you know, those things don't matter, that uh, money is unimportant or anything like that. But I just think that we, we assign it too much importance relative, you know, we, we assign financial uh, circumstances more, you know, more importance than, say, uh, like social or emotional uh, situations for, for young kids. And I think that those are, are far more important, you know, growing up in a poor family that, that's intact, that, that prioritizes the kids' needs and 
you know, pays attention to them and isn't neglectful and so forth, um, that's going to be a much better uh, environment for the kids. And then even if they were to grow up rich, but have just totally uh, neglectful uh, parents who, who are not uh, paying attention to them. Right, Rob, but that would mean actually believing in the notion of sort of social mores and <laughs> moral judgment around your behavior and not simply blaming, you know, blaming this big blah lefty target of sort of like poverty. Um, you're, you're citing lots of studies out of curiosity, Rob. Is this, is this actually your, your academic field of study and you're just writing popular pieces for it as kind of as a, uh, at the same time yeah. or yeah 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 so so i mean you know my my you know day job or whatever i mean i do write uh academic research papers and publish in uh you know psychology journals but yeah i mean i i decided to write yeah for a broader audience because i think a lot of these issues are important uh more people should be aware of this i mean i think we're just all of this preoccupation with you know inequality and so on it's all focused on uh educational attainment and and earnings as if like those are the the metrics we should be most concerned about and not uh life satisfaction or happiness or well-being uh the kinds of things that i think we're, we're actually like really concerned about i mean we only care about educational attainment and money insofar as those things can help people live a good life right and so why don't we just go directly to the to the good life and and, and skip like the the sort of like the middleman here of like you know getting more kids into college or money and so forth um and so yeah uh, a lot of the a lot of the social cohesion has been lost. The cultural guardrails that used to sort of shepherd kids into, uh, you know, sort of functional patterns in adulthood have, have been lost. And the upper class still retains a lot of them. I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you eliminate the cultural guardrails and, and you're an educated and affluent person, you can still find ways to uh, to help your kids and to sort of find environments that are that are conducive to, to healthy child rearing. But if you're a poor person and all of the cultural guardrails are gone and there's no uh, strong social norms around you for uh, raising families, for raising kids, then you're going to have a much harder time, right, uh, to, to sort of teach your kids um, how to live a good life and how to, how to stay out of trouble. And I saw a lot of that firsthand uh, and a lot of my friends in high school as well. I mean, I had five close friends in high school, so there was like a group of six of us. I'm the only one who graduated from college, uh, you know, my other five friends, like two went to prison, you know, two others sort of work in these low paying dead end jobs. You know, the other one, you know, I, I actually, he just got fired from Walmart. And so, you know, that was the sort of typical path that, you know, kids of working class families are on. It's not just foster kids. I mean, I, I probably had like the most turbulent life of any of my friends. I mean, they were sort of in garden variety, broken homes, raised by aunts or grandmas or single parents or whatever, single moms. Um, but those outcomes are, are, are totally typical for, for, uh, for people who are not in um, highly educated social milieus. Yeah, I mean, to, yeah. To really, to really dig into that though, Rob, I mean, we would have to agree on what, on what a good life is, right? And, mm. and, that's the, and that's a question we've been asking ourselves since the times of Socrates. And it seems to be a question that we no longer ask ourselves, actually, because uh, once again, I think it would, you, you would have to mobilize some feeling of either, either moralistic or virtue ethics, right, to declare behavior good and bad. And I think yeah. under, under the conditions of current liberalism, evils are at best systemic and they're not, they're not personal or cultural. Never mind the fact that it would, it would become rapidly apparent that 
certain cultures or certain ways of viewing the world are more functional in modern society than others, which again is also a third rail in, in discourse these days. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing that I like to look at is just, just behavior, right? Like as a, you know, as a social scientist or student of social science is just what do people actually do? And so paying attention to the people who sit at or near the apex of society, how do they live their lives and what kind of uh, lessons do they impart to their kids? And often it, it, it is like these sort of like more traditional, like old school values of like, you know, sort of study hard, work hard, you know, strive, do your best. You know, if you're gonna have kids, get married. I mean, if you look at the marriage rates between uh, college graduates versus uh, high school graduates, I mean, they're worlds apart. So, so for example, like the out of wedlock, uh, uh, birth rate among women who've graduated from college is something like 9%. So the vast majority of college educated women are married when they have kids. Uh, whereas for high school graduates, you know, people whose highest level of education is a high school diploma, and it's 53%. Right. And so, you know, I think that disparity might tell you something about like, well, you know, the people who are sort of you know, doing well in life are making a certain set of choices. And maybe those choices are, you know, not, not the worst thing to do. Uh, maybe they're a better way to go. But unfortunately, a lot of those people, um, you know, who, who are educated and affluent and comfortable, they are reluctant to promote uh, certain ways of living and and often actively promote the opposite of what they're actually doing. You know, what is the they don't they don't uh, preach what they practice. And I think like this is, you know, if, if you give people sort of complete freedom, they'll often behave in very impulsive ways, especially if they don't have uh you know sort of families and and a structure around them to help uh inhibit their their impulses and i think that's what happened uh, to a lot of my friends it was sort of the path that i was on too uh just a sort of complete absence of, of oversight and supervision for for teenage boys is a recipe for disaster um and so i think that this is, is sort of why we're seeing this you know this sort of lost boys phenomenon i know andrew yang recently wrote a piece in the washington post about this about like how young men are aimless and adrift and so on. And I think that's because of like you're talking about here, this um, reluctance to say, you know, what is a good life? What are the, what's a, what are the principles to, to flourish? And so boys are just like feeling completely lost. Yeah. Um, it's weird. I mean, America is one of these places where nobody will, no, nobody will limit how high you can go, know how, know or how far down you can fall. Right. It's this bizarre thing where, yeah, there aren't a lot of the guardrails in society that would, that would typically sort of exist. And again, it's, it's both good and it's both kind of terrible. And you cite the, the thing about, you know, it, imposing a certain order from father figures. I mean, it, yeah, I, it, it seems like boys need to have that order imposed from some older father figure that they respect. And I think in, in your own bio, you mentioned that the, the sort of teacher who, when you were flailing, who academically, who suggested you go into the armed forces was, was an older male, that in some sense you were getting that leadership from older males in your life. Yeah, I was getting it from people all around me. I mean, it's funny, you know, like there's this, I, I think it's it's uh, it's becoming less fashionable now, but this whole sort of self-esteem movement about like, oh, the reason kids fail is because they lack self-esteem. I don't think that's quite as prevalent, but it used to be. Um, the thing is like, I, I actually had quite a bit of encouragement uh, when I was in school and from the people around me, but the thing was like, my, my home life was such a chaotic mess and my early life was so sort of emotionally fraught that I never really um, internalized any of the, the sort of kind words that adults would say to me later, but, but over and over. So, so we're, you know, there was that teacher uh, who was an Air Force veteran. I remember he showed me a picture of him in a flight suit. Uh, he pulled it up on his computer. Uh, 
when he and I were talking one day after class and I saw that and I was like, yeah, that looks really cool. Like maybe, you know, maybe that's an option for me. And he was kind of, uh, you know, gently encouraging me because he, you know, he would say like, man, you got potential. You're just like letting your bad habits get the better of you, like getting into trouble, ditching class, failing and so on. Um, this might be a way for you to get, get, um, get your life in, on, you know, get, get your life together. And yeah, there was another, uh, my manager. So when I was 15, I worked as a dishwasher at an Italian restaurant and I remember, so, so my manager, uh, Jim, this guy named Jim, he had actually served in prison, uh, before, before taking this, uh, this job at this restaurant and, and becoming the manager. But, uh, he took a liking to me and he, he and I got along, um, and he saw how hard I was working. So it was tough for me. I mean, I got a job, uh, at a grocery store to bag groceries. And so I, I went to Jim, I, I, you know, wanted to tell my two weeks notice, put in my two weeks notice and say, Hey, I got this job at this other place. Uh, and, uh, and I was you know, worried that he was going to be, you know, how, how he would take it. But he was like, no, I'm really proud of you. Like, this is great. Like, this is what you want in your life. You want each job you have to be better or each job you get to be better than the job that you had before. And, you know, I was 16 by this point listening to him, you know, I'd worked there for about a year and I was thinking to myself like, yeah, that's really, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious advice, but it's good advice to tell, you know, kind of naive, unsophisticated 16 year olds, like very basic advice is actually a good thing, especially when they don't have dads in their lives you know, to have my manager tell me this very simple piece of advice. It's remained with me to this day. And, you know, I, so I'm, I'm writing a memoir and I recently wrote that story. And, you know, it occurred to me as I was writing it that um, there are a lot of people I'm around today, a lot of, you know, sort of highly educated people who would see something like that and, and think, you know, okay, so is it really such a big deal? Is it really such a big difference to go from washing dishes to bagging groceries like oh wow you went from like one minimum wage job to another like you know you know big deal uh really you're trapped in a sort of system that is actively working against you and you know you're never really going to succeed and like you know if you look at the statistics you know blah 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 you know if you if you actually do look at them only three percent of foster kids go on to graduate from college and so i'm thinking to myself you know as really you know if someone had sat me down when i was 16 and said like you know yeah, okay, wow, you got this grocery store job, like, it, it really, it's not a big deal. There's, a, you know, a whole sort of structure working against you, every, you know, and so it doesn't really matter what you do, it basically trying to undermine agency here. And I, I think that like that, that message is totally poisonous. And then now, like, in, in hindsight, I'm glad that none of those ideas ever reached me. I mean, part of it was because like the internet and social media and stuff wasn't quite as big back then. And also just because, you know, I was in a more sort of working class environment. And so those sort of talking points weren't so prevalent. And so I was around this sort of old school mindset of like, yeah, working hard is a good thing, even though the people around me were often not doing as well in life as they would have liked to. Uh, the general idea was that hard work was a good thing. And yeah, I, I remember like feeling very grateful to to my manager, Jim, for, for giving this advice and, and sort of like helping to cultivate that that mindset in me. And I think like between him and my teachers and so forth, like all of these sort of older male adult figures uh, played like a non-trivial role um, in, in sort of the, the later trajectory of my life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you read the, the biographies of, of people who, you know, often, you know, started in one milieu and ended up in another, how often their lives were touched by sort of 
random strangers who decided to invest in them. I, I just, as a random thought, um, Sidney Poitier died recently, a couple months ago. And um, I, I guess one of the anecdotes from his life is that he was barely literate and working, um, I think as a dishwasher, as a busboy at a restaurant. And a waiter uh, sat him down every day after work and taught him how to read with a newspaper. And uh, if that hadn't happened, you know, the rest, Sidney Poitier, obviously a super distinguished actor, um, you know, wouldn't have happened. Um, so it's interesting how... Um, how some people are willing to actually invest in the next generation, something that we don't tend to do very often. Um, so one question I want to ask you, Rob, because I think uh, of the many things that are interesting about what you write or, or you know, the person you are is that you, is that you have crossed these, these different milieus, not just like you know, red politics to blue politics, but working class to what is sort of elite culture. So I'm curious, you yourself, do you, do you feel more part of one or the other? Like, if you were to go back to Red Bluff now, would you be like a fish out of water? Do you still maintain those friendships and kind of juggle that? Like, what, how, what is that like existing in those, those two worlds, if, if you still do? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. So I, I, I recently posted. So, so I was at a formal dinner uh, the other day in one of these, like, fancy Cambridge colleges. And I posted a photo on my uh, Instagram story. And, and one of my friends, uh, one of my friends from undergrad from Yale, he messaged me saying like, you know, are you sure you don't want to like, you know, stay in academia and like, you know, try to work in a place like that? Like there aren't many places where, you know, that look like that, that are like in housed in these sort of hundred, you know, centuries old buildings. It's so nice. You know, that dinner looked great too. And I, and I wrote back saying like, you know, man, I, I prefer in and out. I prefer Red Robin. Like, I don't really care. Like the food isn't that good. You know, it's, it's nice to be in these places as a special occasion, but I don't really feel a deep attachment to any of it. Um, but that's, you know, all that's to say, though, that I do feel um, what uh, conflicted, you know, I, I don't really, I, I, as I grow older, and sort of like, advance in my life, I guess, I do feel less and less attached to the guys I grew up with. I mean, of, of those five friends that I mentioned earlier, I'm really only in touch on a regular basis with one of them. Now, I've sort of lost, you know, contact with a lot of the others. Um, you know, my sister still lives around there, so I visit, um, you know, a couple times a year and still feel this this affinity for where I grew up. But um, no, I mean, it's it's tough. It's tough to uh, to stay uh, what like to keep one foot in, in, in both sides, I guess, uh, the older I get and, and sort of the less time I spend around there. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, how do I feel now? I, I don't really know. You know, it's interesting, like this whole idea of, of class, you know, so I've, I've made, you know, you and I've been talking about a lot of the more pointed critiques I've made about uh, the upper class. And I've had some charges leveled against me saying like, well, aren't you a member of this class now? Like basically implying that I'm a hypocrite, which I always find fascinating because, you know, no, nobody would have listened to me. Uh, back when I was like a lonely enlisted guy in the military or, you know, back when I was washing dishes, if I had tried to like make any kind of comment whatsoever, it would have been, you know, swiftly ignored. Uh, so, you know, you're either, you know, if, if you're not a member of, of, of a certain class, you're just, you know, you, you, your, your opinion doesn't really matter, right, to, to, to the chattering class, to the educated classes. But then, you know, the, the sort of um, requirements to enter uh suddenly you get called a hypocrite so like if you do attain the credentials or the power or the wealth or whatever it takes to get people to listen to you and you start making these critiques and say well aren't you a member like are you know you're a hypocrite so either way you kind of you know you, you're, you're you're sort of trapped in that case but um if you actually look at the research on this uh in, in terms of like how 
uh, sociologists and psychologists tend to measure social class and and how like sort of these old school um, social critics like Paul Fussell talk about class. Um, they claim that it's actually not really possible to 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 truly climb uh, to, to to leave the class that you were born into simply because class is so much like rooted in your your tastes, your habits, your mannerisms, conversational style, and so on. Um, you know things like kind of, what kind of clothes you wear, the food that you like to eat. Uh, the the kind of pop culture that you consume, all of those things. And so, you know, in a way you do have to be born into it. And even if you, I mean, if you actually look at the, the research, for example, on uh, graduates of elite universities, the graduates of elite universities who have parents who went to college go on to earn much more money than the graduates of elite universities who are first generation students. Um, and part of that is, you know, okay, so they both have this uh, you know, credential from a, a top college. But the one who had parents who are graduates, uh, again, they have like all of that sort of implicit cultural capital that allows them to sort of know who to contact, what, what strings to pull, how to interact, how to like master an interview or, um, you know, how to like, like, like basically all those things that you need to do to prepare if you want a certain kind of occupation or, or a certain kind of professional success. So, you know, is it, is it possible to, to truly enter a new class? I mean, maybe. Um, but but I don't think it's uh, maybe as 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 simple a transition as as a lot of people think. Yeah, you mentioned Paul Fussell, who wrote. I mean, he wrote many things, but one of I guess the one that you were referencing is his book Class, which was the sort of lampooning, um, mm. in if I recall correctly, in a very acerbic way. Um, uh, it, it, although when I read it, it felt a little dated to me. I, I felt. Um, David Brooks's Bobos in Paradise was like, I think, a, a better screwing of the current upper class. But um, but it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's funny because I, I mean, some would claim that I'm also in that elite sphere, sort of, I guess, given some of my employers and the circles I move in. But I did not actually go to a, a prestigious college, actually. In fact, I always kind of resented that. And if there was anything that I felt held me back in life, it was precisely that, right? So like... When I worked at, you know, at Facebook, a lot of the early Facebookers were just Harvardites because they either knew Zuck or they were early adopters of Facebook or whatever. And like I had to get in there through the back door and way later um, due to that. And so, I, I, yeah, it's, it's funny how – I mean, it's part of the reason, of course, why the, the bitter battles over things like affirmative action and Ivy League mm. admissions are so, are so fraught because it is the gateway to that world, right? It's, it's really the last sort of serious class marker that you have – in the United States, right? The old wasps elite yeah. don't really exist, don't really exist anymore. And so it, it's like the one thing that you can sort of pin on your chest that really marks <laughs> you as a certain class. And there's definitely an attitude to it. I mean, I, I used to, I think people often mock it and call it preparation H, which is sort of the Harvard vibe, this sort of sheen of effortless superiority. And someone who comes from that milieu, I can always, I can always smell it on them like a bad odor, like instantly, right? Only people from that milieu look and talk that way. And it was definitely true of a lot of the early Facebook employees who who definitely had preparation age um interesting um so yeah, well, do you have Fussell a feeling himself said, uh, that yeah well, well Fussell himself said that uh you know in, in the absence of, of like a formal uh for formal titles and hierarchy right like we don't have dukes or counts and so on in the united states he said that we rely primarily on uh, educational credentials and so this is why there's this preoccupation with getting into these to these schools uh, for, for a lot of americans is that 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 is sort of like you know like whatever like go, having a harvard degree is like the American equivalent, I guess, of like having a, you know, being known as a Duke or a Count or something uh, right. in, in, in that U.S. context. Right, right. Of having a life peerage or getting, um, you know, honors, <laughs> like those initials that Brits have behind their names that um, right. is, 
Right, which I, you know, I didn't really know about, but the mother of my first kid was British, and so she ran a totally British household, and so we'd have mincemeat pies, um, you know, Marmite, the Pimm's Cups, listening to the Queen's speech, right. and then <laughs> tuning in to whatever the honors were at the, pro- all this British shit. At the end of it, I literally wanted to, like, you know, reenact the American Revolution to not have to listen to this British shit anymore, but it's, it's, it's funny how the, the Brits have actually formalized this in a real way, and in the U.S., like, like with everything, it's never quite planned, but it always turns out that way. And again, you know, looking at looking at the college admission scandals for a lot of these Hollywood stars who, you know, many were set for life money wise already. It's like, well, why are they paying so much and risk like literally risking criminal prosecution for the sake of getting their kids often into schools that like we're not even talking Harvard. Right. We're talking like USC. But still, even USC is still sort of a badge. I mean, it may not quite be Harvard, um, but it's something and they're willing to actually risk their freedom and lots and lots of money to actually achieve. It's it's kind of fascinating in a way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's like part of why the, the, the college uh, debate is kind of misguided. You know, oh, like all these kids are taking out student loans for a degree that's worth increasingly less in, in economic terms. But there are people who like it, it's not like college is not just about money, right? Like it, it is about sort of like having that, that status aside from economics. And so, you know, there are people who will gladly go into debt for forty or fifty thousand dollars in order to have to have the label uh, of, of college graduate like that is worth more than just money in America today. And, and that's why, like you said, like in that varsity blue scandal, a lot of the celebrities and, and all these rich people were willing to risk everything and, and shell out vast sums of money uh, in order to get their kids into school, right. Into, into these colleges, because it's not just about money. I mean, I think that's like a sort of misguided or sort of a misconception in America. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time talking about economic class and, and not so much about, about social class. Right, right, right. So, just wrapping this up a little bit, um, Rob, I'm, I'm still curious. Someone, I mean, you're also relatively young, so maybe this question hasn't been answered yet or will be answered in time. Um, but, like, again, this business of being caught between two worlds. Like, I'm literally talking to you from, like, rural red state Nevada right now. Tomorrow I'll fly back to nice. San Francisco, which, which, of course, is in, like, blue state la-la land. And, it's, <laughs> it, it, and, and it, for some reason I've always been stuck at, like, the intersection of – weird Venn diagrams. Like in Miami, it's like Latin American culture with American culture. In my career, it's been like tech and media. And then now like politically and lifestyle wise, it's like either my mud covered Jeep in the snow, like going to this rustic town where people open carry guns and then going to San Francisco where like the city's imploding and it's an urban dystopia, but everyone votes solid blue. And like, I myself don't know what the answer is. I'm curious, like if, if you have an, an intuition, like if, you know, after you finish your PhD, I don't know if you're going to stay in academia or not, but if, if you come back to the United States, in some sense, you'll be, you'll be binarized into that decision by default, right? In some sense. And so I'm, I'm curious if, um, if you have any feeling there of what that's going, what that's going to be like, or or maybe you're just going to stay in the United in Europe and it's not even going to be an issue. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I that I've been, you know, there there are a lot of what uh, things that I miss about the U.S. and times I felt uh, homesick, but I I have been glad to be in the U.K. because like there's just much less political polarization here um, compared to the U.S. I mean, it is just like constant. Uh, vitriol, um, especially you know, you, you, if you're active on Twitter, which you and I very much are, that we can see that what's going on here. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I grew up, I was raised, you know, my, my mother and her partner were um, uh, basically working class Democrats. Uh, and so sort of like center left. And that was sort of what I grew up around. And then I guess like as I grew older, I sort of shifted a little bit. But 
you know, the decision, I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I was recently in Miami. I loved it there. Um, I recently accepted a post uh, at the University of Austin, uh, just a faculty fellowship. Uh, I haven't decided whether I'm actually going to move there. It doesn't require relocation, but I'll be teaching a course there. And if I like it, then, then maybe I'll end up sticking around. Um, I don't really see myself going back to California unless it is like, like literally up like, like Northern California, like Redding, you know, like that sort of like upper chunk, like right before you entered the Oregon border, um, which really isn't California. Um, California is really like three, maybe four states. Uh, and that part, like way north of Sacramento, which is completely different. And so if I were to move up there, like near, near my sister and some of my family, you know, maybe that would be okay, but I haven't really settled yet. That, that's the that that's the state of Jefferson, right? That's the breakaway Republic of Jefferson up there, up north. People, right. For those who don't, for those who don't realize, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for those who don't realize it, California is actually a red state by area. If you actually look at the counties, it's actually a red state. But it's just the cities that tip it blue and tend to dominate this politics. But if you go into the Central Valley or as you go up what the places that Rob is referring to, there's this movement called the state of Jefferson that, um, I, you know, I assume it's only semi-serious, but they kind of want to break away from the rest of the state because it, it definitely has a very, a very different vibe to it. Um, con- congrats on the university of Austin thing, by the way, I've, I've interviewed Neil Ferguson about it shortly after the announcement, um, and nice. did an interview about it uh, on the Miami front. As you, as you might know, I was raised in Miami and I've spending more and more time there as this whole tech thing kind of takes off. So I would definitely, I would definitely endorse the Miami decision. I think Miami is in many ways the most American city in America, and is also very much a future and forward-looking thing. And um, I don't know, it's just it's it's a very uh, it's a very fun, warm sort of city. And um, yeah, I, I think it, it might be yeah. an interesting place to to spend some time. It feels much more um, optimistic. Uh, walking yeah. around Miami when I was there versus walking around San Francisco, I do feel this sense of uh, yeah, it just feels kind of grim and. Uh, spiritually empty. Yeah, Miami San Francisco. Yeah, no, San Francisco sucks. Basically, sorry, it's just true. I was walking around the mission a couple of days ago, and it is just like this trash-strewn gallery of like human misery. It is, it's terrible. I mean, there are parts of it that are still nice, and you can have a life inside of it, and certainly you can insulate yourself from the reality with money, which is what a lot of the techie affluent do. But still, if you want to have like a normal life and you expect to walk on the street and not see this constant gallery of horrors, then San Francisco is definitely not the city for you. And you're exactly right. Miami is like upbeat. It's positive. It's very cosmopolitan. It's very forward-looking. It's pro-business. Like it's just—it's like a completely different vibe. Like you step off the plane from San Francisco. Like I can see why a lot of these techies get there and then they, they like never leave. They like buy a condo and that's it. I'm staying here because it's like it's this most—it's like the most refreshing duality. It's like getting out from some underworld Greek legend and suddenly going up into the sun and like holy <laughs> shit. You mean and in partic- particularly during COVID times, which whatever you think of the lockdowns policy, whatever it was the case that you would go from this like lockdown pandemic this topic thing to like suddenly sunny Miami. And it's like, Oh my God, like another world is possible. Right. Um, so anyhow, I, I haven't moved to Miami yet. So obviously, although I've, I have thought about yet. it. Are you going to? Yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the problem is, I mean, I would right for, for a bunch of reasons, but, um, I still have family and friends in San Francisco and they kind of refuse to move. And so it's, it would be difficult for me to, 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 I have a, a, my youngest kid is there and the mother like stubbornly mm-hmm. refuses to leave San Francisco <laughs> and, and just won't hear about going to Miami. She, she just thinks it's horrible. So I, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Um, mm. um, I'll definitely, I'm definitely traveling there at least a couple times in the next few months. So, um, but nice. in any case, Rob, th- 
thanks for your time. Um, good, good to finally get to know you because, again, I, I think we've followed each other on Twitter for a while, and I've been reading your stuff for a while. Um, but best of luck finishing the PhD. I, well, I don't know what that's like because I didn't finish my PhD, but I, I do know what it is <laughs> to be looking forward to finishing um, the PhD. And I, I look forward to reading um, more of your writing uh, going forward. I, I assume you'll keep on writing even after you, after you graduate? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I still put out a, a newsletter. I still uh, write for various publications here and there. And, uh, and yeah, I'm working on a book as well. So, yeah, yeah I, I have no plans to, to stop writing anytime soon. You, you've been bit by the bug, as have I. It's unfortunate. Um, great. Well, thank you, Rob. And thanks again, uh, pull request listeners. As always, um, this, uh, just FYI, Rob, it's a live audience thing, but then it's kind of like a podcast and that it gets archived. And so I'll be posting it probably in the next couple of days. Um, and I'll probably tweet about it and include some of your writing along with it so people can get to know, get to know your writing. But uh, thanks again for, uh, for joining us, Rob. Okay. Thanks, Antonio. Appreciate All right. it. All right. See ya. Bye.